0: Over the past several decades, there's been a 50% reduction in cardiovascular mortality in the United States, driven by the integration of basic science, translational research, technological innovation, public policy, and public health practice. But cardiovascular disease still represents an important cause of illness and death. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Gary Gibbons, Director of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. As part of the journal series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Gibbons has co-authored a perspective article about progress in understanding, preventing, and treating atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Dr. Gibbons, in your perspective article, you describe how cardiovascular disease became the leading cause of death in the United States during the first half of the 20th century. How did trends in both cardiovascular disease and other common killers lead us to that point.
1: Well, as you described at the beginning of the 20th century, infectious diseases were the major causes of morbidity and mortality in the United States. And related to the understanding of the etiologic basis of microbes and the implementation of public health practices, there was that dramatic decline as infectious diseases became under control. And that really just served as a backdrop in which the emergence of cardiovascular disease started to increase up to its zenith probably in the 60s and 70s as the number one killer, a disorder that was deemed age-related and chronic as opposed to infectious disease. And yet it was not clear what its etiologic basis was during much of that century as it was recognized that there may be a number of factors, familial and otherwise, that predisposed. And indeed, that's where it was critical to begin the Framingham Heart Study in 1948, when uh, this scourge of cardiovascular disease was recognized to actually set the frame of understanding the risk factors. In fact, the Framingham Heart Study actually defined the concept of risk factors, and it later evolved as a preventive strategy to modify risk factors as a way of preventing disease. So in that way, cardiovascular disease set a paradigm for preventive health and preventive medicine.
0: So how, in fact, did studies like the Framingham Heart Study inform the medical and public health communities about those risk factors and what to do about them?
1: Well, it's actually notable that the Framingham Heart Study included both men and women as part of the study group. This is again back in 1948. And it was because of that inclusiveness, if you will, that we learned that clearly heart disease affects both men and women, despite the sort of caricature of it as a disease of men and recognizing that it had a different natural history in which many of the complications were perhaps shifted about a decade later. That all came out of the Framingham Heart Study. In addition, it was recognized that there were certain risk factors high blood pressure, smoking, diabetes that predisposed to coronary heart disease and both men and women. And because those were potentially modifiable, that's really what gave great promise that we could control this sort of chronic disease pandemic. Superimposed on that was an appreciation that there were other factors like high cholesterol that were noted. And yet the etiologic pathway by which that risk factor is seen in population might predispose disease needed to be elucidated. And that's where the advent and advances in molecular genetics played a key role in defining those causal pathways.
0: Looking at those risk factors, when did primary prevention start to become possible for cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, so again, a great point is that during that period, and now we're probably in the 60s and 70s, where you started to recognize the risk factors, the notion that, for example, high blood pressure may predispose to heart attacks and strokes started to lead to appreciation that perhaps if we lowered blood pressure, we can actually prevent those complications. And so there were studies done, some in the Veterans Health Administration and other trials that were funded by the NIH to actually demonstrate that lowering blood pressure actually could save lives. And those landmark studies were done in the 60s and 70s and those hypotheses had their basis in the observational studies like at Framingham and they sort of closed the causal loop if you will you knew something was a risk factor but you didn't know whether it was a driver until you do a randomized clinical trial to show that modifying that risk factor does indeed improve health outcomes and so again i think this was part of a paradigm that was emerging in prevention where you actually could improve and extend life by these preventive measures and high blood pressure being one of the early ones, subsequently followed by lowering LDL cholesterol that then came on its heels as we started to appreciate the pathways that determine cholesterol, particularly the the pathways of LDL metabolism revealed by molecular genetics and the recognition of the metabolic pathways that drive that as drug targets. And uh, as part of a sort of public-private ecosystem, that basic science information that population science information translated into drug development, and then clinical trials to show that statins also, when lowering cholesterol, save lives and prevent heart disease and strokes. So again, it was a virtuous cycle, if you will, of discovery science translation that then had public health impact that I believe still is one of the great success stories in biomedicine.
0: So you mentioned molecular genetics. In what ways have discoveries in molecular genetics led to new methods of treating or preventing cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, it's really difficult to talk about atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and LDL cholesterol without alluding to the Nobel Prize winning work of Michael Brown and Joseph Goldstein and others that have contributed to appreciating the key driving etiologic role of LDL metabolism as a determinant of atherosclerotic disease. Their early studies of familial cases gave a greater appreciation for the heritable nature of the determinants of cholesterol and eventually the identification clearly of the LDL receptor as a key molecular determinant of the level. And therefore also, again, pathways that could be manipulated through therapeutic agents and interventions, such as I mentioned, statins as inhibitors of HMG co-reductase as a key rate limiting step in that metabolic pathway. So it's understanding those molecular mediators of key risk factors that then really gave a driving point for drug development. And again, the translation into clinical practice and public health impact. So it's really having that mechanistic insight that was so key. And as we alluded to in the piece, that sort of virtuous cycle was repeated yet again more recently by studies, particularly those of Helen Hobbs, a collaborator of Joe Goldstein and Michael Brown, who identified variants in PCSK9 as determinants of LDL metabolism, both low LDL as well as high LDL. So the tails of the distribution gave insight into the molecular mediators of that variance. And that became yet another drug target using more recent technologies of antibodies to interrupt this pathway. And again, another round of clinical trials that showed that interfering with PCSK9 metabolism could also lower cholesterol and also reduce heart attack. So again, a repeat of that same virtuous cycle.
0: You say in your article that it's become increasingly clear that the antecedents of atherosclerosis begin in utero. So in the future, how early in the trajectory of cardiovascular disease do you think we're going to be able to intervene?
1: Uh, Yes. Well, That was one of the fun parts of the piece with my colleagues, Dr. Cricket Seidman and Eric Topol, as we kind of looked back from the past to sort of see the current landscape and perhaps peek into the future. And I think that's one of the potential exciting elements on the horizon is that this is often seen as a kind of a disease of the elderly or chronic aging. And yet, if you then have that sort of lifespan perspective of how this all rolls out, many of the current treatment paradigms that focus in on middle age and elderly, really it begs what we now know that this is a cumulative effect of decades and really suggests a more transformative approach that might actually preempt the disease, not simply slow its progression in the latter years, but to ask the question that if we intervened early, if we interrupted that cumulative process over decades, perhaps we could change an entire individual's trajectory. And that begs for the notion of potentially intervening early. And that really is a a natural extension of that preventive health, preventive medicine approach. And then if you integrate precision health and precision medicine into that, we should be able to better predict who is at the greatest high-risk trajectory over time. And so to get an extension of that Framingham Heart Study risk profile. But now with the technologies we have in polygenic risk scores and other elements, we should be able to characterize risk and tailor it in a more personalized way, more effectively moving forward in such a fashion to change the trajectory and put people on a healthy preventive lifestyle from an earlier stage in their life that may have long standing impact. That's a daunting challenge, but I think it's there on the horizon. In fact, there have already been proof of concept studies in which both in mouse and non-human primates to actually induce the protective mutations of PCSK9 in the liver, in order to to induce sustained reductions in LDL over a period of that, in that case decades, because you're actually editing the liver genome for the long-term. So that's still out there, not quite ready for prime time, but it is on the horizon. And so that kind of capability is growing and emerging as a possibility.
0: Finally, in your article, you described the inequities and environmental influences that have prevented some further progress against cardiovascular disease. So going forward, how should we weigh the importance of the biomedical advances that you've talked about versus public health approaches? Or how can we combine them in effective ways?
1: I think you hit on it, Stephen, that it's really a matter of holistic and integrative view of promoting wellness and wellness and well-being with health equity. And I think that that is also the future vision that we hold. Indeed, I think that's part of the genesis and mission of the National Academies. Uh, These were created to make science a benefit to all society and to guide our social contract for this public good. And in that way, integrating the social determinants of health, what enables someone to have access to a healthier lifestyle and to mitigate their exposure to things that are deleterious, is also part of our biomedical objective. It doesn't end with the clinic door. And there's precedent for it, right? That Framingham identified tobacco smoking as a major risk factor. And so that exposure has substantially been mitigated by policy changes, such that you can no longer smoke in an airplane. There's some of us old enough to remember that they had ashtrays in the armrests. And so that's something we don't even think about as a possibility anymore. And that reflects that science, having that social and policymaking basis that's enhanced the health of the entire community. That, I think, is still ahead of us as we wrestle with the social determinants of health and address health equity.
0: Thank you, Dr. Gibbons.